Our New Testament passage this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each, person, each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, And so your faith and hope are in God. Our Old Testament reading and our sermon text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. And I want to actually invite you to grab your Bibles. They should be in front of you. uh, And you can read along with me. Uh, It's on page 79 in the Red Bibles. And it's on page 116 in the brown ones. It's only two verses. And I'll read them now. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may be seated. Well, I want to let you in on a little secret. The first few words of a sermon are not always the most thought-out words. A lot of times when I'm up here, the first things I'm doing are fumbling around, trying to get my, my stopwatch started, getting my Bible open to the right place. I know some pastors, when they start preaching, they just say the exact same thing every single time. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my favorite preachers, if you go and listen to his decades of preaching, you'll find that every single sermon begins with the exact same words. He says, the text that I would like to draw your attention to today is. I bring this up just to say that the first few words of an address can often be ignored. You won't miss out on a lot of the content of the message. But that is certainly not the case for our passage today. What we're looking at this morning uh, is called the preface or the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And these words are not time fillers. In fact, the words in the introduction to the Ten Commandments are as important for us as the commandments themselves. It is impossible for us to rightly understand, interpret, or even to apply the Ten Commandments if we don't grasp the doctrine in these first couple of verses. 
They do a lot more than set the stage for the Ten Commandments that are coming, but they establish the core dynamics of our relationship with God. This, it's, it shows us how we are supposed to interpret this law that, as we read it, you'll find it's extremely weighty. So what does it mean for us this morning as we are headed to study these? Well, it means, first, that I hope if we grasp the meaning of these verses today that we're going to get a glimpse of God's heart. We're going to see his heart towards his people. And I hope as we do that, we're going to find not just a desire, but actually the power for each of us to live a life that glorifies God. Now this morning, we're going to approach these verses by looking at three different elements of the law that you find in this text. We're going to look at first the shocking nature of the law. Then secondly, the relationship in the law. And finally, the obligation that comes from the law. So the shocking nature of the law, the relationship in the law, and the obligation that comes from the law. All right, so let's get into it. The shocking nature of the law. Our passage begins with this. And God spoke all these words. If you have been in the church a long time, if you have grown up in a heavily Christian culture, then you might be tempted just to breeze over that part, right? Of course, God spoke these words. Of course, God spoke the Ten Commandments. Who else is going to speak the Ten Commandments? But do you realize that this moment stands apart in all of history? God did not speak these words the way he spoke other portions of Scripture. If you want to know how other parts of Scripture came about, you can look in in, uh, 2 Peter where he tells us that prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God led men through the Spirit to then speak the words of God. But that's not what happens here. I ask you to open your Bibles because if you jump down just a few verses to verse 18, you read this. After the Ten Commandments were spoken, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. When Moses says here that God spoke these words, he means God. God himself spoke these words. And the people learned in that moment one of the primary lessons of the law. God is not like us. God is holy. And what does God say here? When he begins to speak, what are his first words? He says, I am the Lord. In your English Bibles, you'll see it says Lord in all caps, right? And that signifies to us that behind that 
English word is the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. God comes in that moment and he declares, I'm Yahweh. I am the God who revealed himself to Moses. I am that I am. He's saying in that moment that, that I am God, eternal, unchangeable, almighty. The voice these people were hearing was the very voice that spoke the world into existence. Can you imagine? Can you think of a more stunning difference between a speaker and his audience? We just saw a presidential inauguration this week, right? That is pretty much the height of pomp and circumstance that we can come up with in this world. We have a speaker standing high on a podium, surrounded by flags, surrounded by important people at a great distance from everyone else. But at the end of the day, when we see that person speaking, we know that no matter how great a leader may be, even the greatest leaders are just like us. They're just human beings. They're flawed. They're imperfect. They're able to make mistakes. They're just like us. But God is not. That was the shock. That was the shock that came to these people thousands of years ago. But it is also the shock that comes to us anytime we honestly take a look at the law of God. See, what you learn from the story of Scripture, if you pick up this book and you keep to read it, what you learn from just being in the church and living with, with others, you realize that the people of God throughout history have had the tendency to minimize the holiness of God. People of God throughout history, they've had the tendency to, to minimize his holiness, to try to make God more like themselves. We tend to forget that God's not like us. You see it all over the pages of history as well, these moments when the church, believing itself to be doing the right thing, becomes consumed not by the values of God, but actually they, the church gets consumed by the values of its culture. They major on one part of God's law, and they entirely neglect another. Look back at the Crusades, for instance. People who were so consumed by a passion to see God's kingdom come that they started murdering entire groups of people to try to achieve that end. Or look at the history of slavery in America. Men and women who were often devout Christians, who believed that all people were made in the image of God, and yet who felt no conviction over the dehumanizing act of owning other human beings. They even used scripture to defend their position. Throughout history, the church has shown its tendency to de-emphasize 
or even completely ignore the parts of the law that are inconvenient, that are unappealing. And what we're going to find over the next few weeks as we study these commandments, what we're going to find is we're no different from them. God is not like us. And if that's the case, if God is not like us, well then surely, when we approach his perfect law, we, we should expect that it's going to sting. In Psalm 50, God is calling out his people for their sin. And he lists all these terrible things that they have done. And then he says... When you did these things, I kept silent. You thought that I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you, and I set my accusations before you. I'm telling you this because we cannot expect, when we start to look at each one of these commandments, we can't expect God to simply affirm what we already think is true. The law is spoken by a God who is awesome, who is mighty, who is infallible. And since, since we're none of those things, we should expect we're going to get convicted of sin. Amen. And some, some sin we didn't even know we had before we started to study the law. See, the law is going to show us a picture of God in all of his majesty. And all of his terror, it reveals his glory, his greatness, his weightiness. And when we see him that way, it's a little bit shocking. Because in that moment, when you see who he is, you realize that, that he is the creator, and you are just a creature. And that means there is nothing left to do but worship. It means that worship is owed to him simply because of who he is. And that's the first point. There is a shocking nature to the law. There's a shocking nature to the law. It displays the perfection of God. It exposes the ways we have imagined God in our own image. It lays us bare before him. And it makes us tremble. And that brings me to the second point. The relationship in the law. The reality of God is terrifying. But immediately, when he starts to speak in this passage, the first words he says are surprising. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a, a father who is wealthy beyond all imagination. I mean, I'm talking the, the kind of money that, that would put Jeff Bezos to shame. I mean, he is, he is wealthy, okay? 
And I want you to imagine that this, this father, he says to you, child, one day my wealth could be yours. But if you want it, there's some things you got to do. See, I have this list of behaviors that I want to see in you. I have this list of duties that I want you to perform. And if you do, then maybe someday I'll give you my wealth. But if you don't, well, then I'm going to take all this money that I have and I'm going to hire lawyers. And I'm going to give them one assignment to make sure that you never see a penny and that the rest of your existence is miserable. Now, I want you to imagine another father. This father is also wealthy beyond imagination. And he says to you, child, you are my child. All that I have is practically yours already. I love you. You live in my household. And I love it when you come around. And because I love you, because you are mine, because you are destined to inherit all this wealth, I want to teach you the right way to live. I have these rules to share with you that are going to show you how to thrive. These, this way of living is going to enable you to become most blessed. Can you picture those two fathers? Now, I'm giving you this example because I want you to realize that if we start the Ten Commandments in verse 3, then we can easily fall into the trap of believing that God is that first father. That he's the one who says, do this or else. But the preface to the Ten Commandments tells us that actually our God begins in relationship. That deliverance comes before the law. Before God tells us what to do, he says, I am Yahweh, your God. You understand, he's giving his personal name. He's reminding these people of a long history of his faithfulness that goes back hundreds of years before this. It goes back to Abraham. When he calls him and he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to be, I'm going to be your God and you're, you will be my people. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them that they have just gone through this great deliverance. You remember it, right? The, the plagues, the miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, this amazing deliverance. The Ten Commandments begin with God saying, you are my children. I love you. You have already been delivered. You're free. Now here is how to live out your freedom. Here is how a free person lives. Or maybe look at it from another angle. If you read any of the commentaries, what you'll find is the Ten Commandments follow very closely uh, 
another histor historical documents. They follow very closely ancient contracts. Basically, the Ten Commandments read like treaties written between a king and his subjects. And there's lots of these treaties that you can find that exist from around this same time period. Uh, contracts, vows made between a king and his vassals, between a ruler and the people around him. The Ten Commandments, they are a covenant document. And in all these other covenant documents that you find in history, they always begin the same way. They begin with the king giving a historical prologue. He shares the history of their relationship. He tells the story and establishes why these people should enter into this relationship with him, why they should obey his terms. And here, in the Ten Commandments, the great king, he opens by saying, I am the creator of all things. I have been faithful to you already for many generations. I have just recently delivered you from slavery. And therefore, since you are my protected people, you should follow my ways. The beauty that you find in this historical prologue, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is that that verse is a glimpse into our salvation, isn't it? The Christian faith does not begin with a list of rules that we're supposed to follow. It begins with us in slavery. Our faith begins with us in slavery to sin. It begins with us helpless, hopeless, incapable of ever pleasing God on our own. It begins with us captive to the power of Satan and sin and death, destined for hell, destined to suffer for eternity apart from God. But Christ, the great king, has come to our rescue. He has defeated all of our enemies, and he has conquered our hearts. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then I know that this is your story, because it's all of our stories. We didn't do anything for our own salvation. We were not thinking of God. He put the desire for him in our hearts. He opened our eyes so that we could finally see our sin. He opened our mouths so that we could cry out for repentance and say, I need a Savior. While we were far off, God came to us and he said, I am the Lord, your God. To quote another pastor, what God said to Israel here, is essentially the same thing he says to every believer in Christ. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the Egypt of your sin, out of your slavery to Satan. God says that to every believer. You know, maybe, maybe he's saying that to you today. 
want to get anything out of the Ten Commandments. Then, of course, we've got to see God as, as he is in his terrifying majesty, as in his perfection, in his holiness, in his glory. But we also have to remember that through Christ, we have been welcomed in his presence. We're invited to come before him as beloved children. By the time we get to living out this law, we're not doing it as people who are under wrath and judgment, but as people who are already free. Amen. We're already out of Egypt. <laughs> we are already safe in the home of a father who loves us and our inheritance is guaranteed. Amen. So that means that God, he's not the tyrant that our faithless hearts tend to imagine. Even after a lot of years walking with Jesus, we can still imagine him this way, can't we? He's not an angry God who is warring against us, waiting for us to mess up so he can stomp on us. God is not like us. And it's amazing news that he loves us. God's not holding the law over us as a weapon, not a tool to, to judge us by. No, the power of his Holy Spirit is in us, keeping us, protecting us, and then empowering us to live by that law. Amen. He's the Lord. He's the Lord our God who has freed each of us from slavery. There is a relationship in the law. That's the second point. And the third point is this. There is an obligation, then, that comes from the law. The question that follows all this stuff, then, is, well, what does this mean for us? The next few weeks, we're going to start looking at these commandments one by one and, and digging into them. How are we supposed to respond to them? What is our obligation to the law? Well, if all this stuff we said is true, because Christ has purchased our freedom by his blood on the cross, that means we're obligated to study them, to keep them, and to proclaim them. First, we're obligated to, to study them. The law shows us who God is. We talked about that last week, remember? Without the law telling us, we don't really know what holiness is. Without the law describing it, we don't truly know who God is. The law is the tool. It's the mirror, right? It is the lens that shows us our Redeemer. The law shows us the God we love. And if that's the case, then we should want to study the law. We should want to dive into the law. We should want to, to bask in the law and to mine it, mine its depths for every ounce of knowledge that we can find in there. Like Psalm 119, the, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's just a guy reflecting on how beautiful the law is. He says, Oh, how I love your law. 
I meditate on it all day long. He knows the glory of God is seen in the law. I remember when I first started dating Melissa, this was still in the pre-smartphone era, when we didn't have a picture of every meal we'd eaten together and everything we'd ever done. <laughs> Just had a, a couple of pictures. And kids, I took those pictures on a thing they used to call a camera. And uh, we, we, I had these pictures and I, I had them with me and, and I cherished them. When I went home to visit my parents, I'd show them the pictures I had, right? Show them to my friends. I'd look at them when we, when we weren't together because I loved her, right? And, and she loved me and I, I wanted to see her. The law is like that for a believer. It is meant to give us an image of the God we love, of the God who loves us. So in Christ, we study the law, but we also keep the law. The law, it begins with the announcement that God set us free from slavery, and it tells us that. Well, well why does it tell us that? Why does it start off with this proclamation that you're free? It's so that you will remember that this law is meant for your freedom. Amen. The law is meant to show us how to be free. Do you know that? James, he says that. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. God has given these commands to us because when we live them out, we are most free. Now, unfortunately, because of the sin that's inside of us, we have trouble believing that, don't we? In our sin, we have managed to make these commandments seem pretty terrible sometimes. Look, we've, we've even managed to do this with the fourth commandment, where God says, take a day off. He says, don't do your normal work one day a week. And we say, you tyrant, how dare you? But these laws, they're a path to a truly blessed life. It's a way for us to become like our beloved, to become like our God. And so, because Christ has set us free, we are obligated to study the law, to keep the law, and finally, we're obligated to proclaim the law. And I want to be clear when I say this. When I, when I say Christians are obligated to proclaim the law, I don't mean that it is our job to impose the law of God on the rest of the world. Now, there is a place where the law can benefit society. We talked about that last week, the civil use of the law. But I believe that one of the worst things that the church has done in this country over the past century is to proclaim the law apart from the gospel. One of the most damaging things that has happened to the church is that we have developed a reputation 
as a people who tell others how to live and what to do. I mean, so many times, so often we have expected people to get on board with the first commandment, but we've skipped over the preface. You know what I mean? We, we want people to live like Christians, but we haven't preached Christ to them. So when I say we're obligated to proclaim the law, I'm not talking about enforcing it on people outside these walls, but I'm talking about what Peter said. He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. The law is an offense. We're going to find out in the next few weeks. The law is offensive, even to us. The law is an offense. People reject it when they hear it apart from God. But there is something beautiful about a Christian whose life is humbly surrendered to God. There is something beautiful about a person who is so deeply in love with Jesus that they obey his commands even when it's hard. Maybe especially when it's hard. Those kinds of people display the power of God. Those kinds of people prove Christ to the world. They declare the reality of a Savior to a world that is still enslaved. I want us to be those kinds of people. I want us to be the kinds of people that live lives that display Christ to the world. If we could become those kinds of people, live in surrender to God, if we could be the kinds of Christians that not only let the law affirm what we already believe, but let it expose our blind spots, convict us so that we truly become like Christ, what would happen? What would happen to the world around us? What would happen to Mooresville if all of a sudden a few dozen of us started living so dramatically differently from the rest of the world so that everybody knew that the power of God was at work in us, so that everyone knew that the living, powerful, almighty, terrible, gentle, loving, sacrificial God himself was at work in you. I'll tell you what would happen. Revival. May he bring it as we study his words. Amen.